For I've had enough of this world and its pleasures. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. I will arise and go forth to the house of my father. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. House of my young. Shalom, and welcome to today's teaching on the Hebraic roots of Christianity, where we study first century Christianity and the faith that Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means salvation, taught his disciples. And now, Hebraic roots teacher Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries International. Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and we welcome you to today's teaching on the subject exposing the kingdom of darkness. This is part eight of the series. So next we're going to see that the Statue of Liberty actually represents and symbolizes the Roman goddess of liberty. The statue, a gift to the United States from the people of France, or more specifically, French Masons to American Masons, is of a robed female figure representing Libertas, the Roman goddess of freedom who bears a torch upon which is inscribed the date of the American Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776. The Roman goddess Libertas represents liberty and freedom. As a result, she was the goddess of immigrants. However, as the goddess of freedom, she represented freedom to do with anything that felt good, and this included sexual freedom. As a result, she is linked to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. In the writings of the Roman historian Cicero, Ishtar has the title of Mother of Harlots. Part of the makeup of the Statue of Liberty is she has a seven-spiked crown. While the French sculptor Frederick Bartholdi designed the Statue of Liberty, the idea for creating a Statue of Liberty and Freedom came from another Frenchman named Edward Laboulet, who was also a Freemason. They conceived that the statue should be an artistic rendering of the Roman goddess Libertas, whom Bartholdi privately wrote in his memoirs stating a mystery doctrine regarding the purpose of her crown. The seven rays of her spiked crown that jets out into the sky symbolizes the seven seas and continents. The seven-ray crown is called an Aroli, which has been associated with the sun god Helios in the ancient Greek mythology, as well as Apollo. Apollo was represented as a solar deity, dressed in a similar robe and having on its head a radiate crown, with the seven spiked rays of the Helios Apollo sun rays, like the statue's nimbus or halo. The ancient Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was the statue of Helios with a radiate crown. A torch sits on top of the Statue of Liberty. It represents the sun in the sky. The word Illuminati means to bear light, and one way to symbolize this is by carrying a torch. So this is the representation of the Masonic Torch of Enlightenment. Back in the 1700s, the Masons called this the Flaming Torch of Reason. The victors of these early Olympic Games were crowned with wreaths, 
from a sacred olive tree that grew behind the temple of Zeus. According to tradition, this tree was planted by Hercules, founder of the games. So given that we've just learned that the ancient Greece Olympic Games were dedicated to the supreme god of the Greek pantheon of gods, that is Zeus, we now want to examine the deeper meaning and understanding of how the Greeks viewed their supreme god Zeus. So now I share with you an article that covers the history and the Greeks' perspective of their supreme god Zeus. In the Greek culture, Zeus was originally nothing more than a god who was just a bit more formidable than the other gods. His glorification as the god of gods came only after centuries of history, myths, and various traditions. Later in the development of the hierarchy of the Greek gods, Zeus became the head of the Greek pantheon. Zeus appears as the image of appeasement, order, wisdom, and justice. Indeed, the rules that Zeus formulated for the gods in the heavens were also established in earthly societies. Henceforth, the kings governed the cities and the peoples. Everyone was answerable to Zeus. So as a result, Zeus was able to claim the two titles of father of the gods and father of men. In Greek culture, Zeus was consecrated as the universal god and the holder of all earthly and heavenly goods. So one of the symbols of Zeus was the eagle. He was also associated with lightning and victory. So now we're going to look at the relationship between Zeus and Europa. The goddess Europa was explained to be the beautiful daughter of the Phoenician king of Tyre in Greek mythology. So in the Greek culture of gods, Zeus was married to Europa. And one of the stories regarding their relationship with each other is as follows. Zeus, falling in love with Europa, he himself was disguised as a snow-white bull. Europa was struck by his beauty and on finding him gentle as a lamb, mastered her fear and began to play with him. And in the end, she climbed upon his shoulders. So therefore, Europa is often represented as a woman riding on a bull who is seen as Zeus. In the book of Revelation, it describes and mentions a woman riding on a beast. So next, I want to share with you how the European Union sometimes portrays itself as Europa riding on a bull or Zeus. And this was a representation of a 1984 British stamp. So next I want to show you an artist's rendition of the Tower of Babel from a painting by Peter Bruegel in 1563. That being the case, you can see the picture on the right is of the European Parliament building in Strasbourg, France. And this European Parliament building built in Strasbourg, France looks similar to Peter Bruegel's painting and rendition of the Tower of Babel from 1563. So next we want to share with you that Mount Olympus was the home of the 12 Olympians. Mount Olympus, which is the highest mountain in Greece, remember that the worship of Baal was done in the high places. So Mount Olympus is the highest mountain in Greece located in Thessaly. It was said to be the home of the 12 Olympians. And these were the principal gods in the Greek pantheon of gods. And these 12 high-ranking gods were said to live in crystal mansions. 
And of the twelve Olympian gods, Zeus was regarded as the supreme god of the Olympians. So in the Greek system of gods, Zeus was the king of the gods, ruler of Mount Olympus and god of the sky and lightning. His symbols were the thunderbolt, eagle, bull, serpent, and oak tree. So next we're going to begin to share with you the political, economic, business, pyramid structure of the Western world. And who is at the top of this pyramid is a group called the Committee of 300. And because they're at the top of the pyramid, they are sometimes referred to as the Olympians. So the Committee of 300, also known as the Olympians, is a product of the British East India Company's Council of 300, founded by the British aristocracy in 1727. The East India Company was chartered by the British royal family in 1600. And from the book by Dr. John Coleman, entitled Conspirator's Hierarchy, The Story of the Committee of 300, he shares a 1909 quote, from the founder of the German General Electric Corporation. 300 men, all of whom know one another, direct the economic destiny of Europe and choose their successors from among themselves. So this is quoting Walter Rathenau in 1909, who was the founder of the German General Electric Corporation. So the following is the historical background of what ultimately became in time the Committee of 300. So in reference to the East India Company that was chartered by the British royal family in 1600, it made vast fortunes in the opium drug trade with China and became the largest company on earth in its time. Today, through many powerful alliances, the Committee of 300 rules the world. Its ultimate goal is one world government. Queen Elizabeth II presently is the head of the Committee of 300. So the Committee of 300 is the ultimate group of people that's at the top of the Western world pyramid, political, economic, and business structure. And they have an inner circle of the Committee of 300 called the Knights of the Order of the Garter. And the Committee of 300, which includes the inner circle of the Knights of the Order of the Garter, runs the world through its front organizations, such as the Royal Institute for International Affairs, also known as the Chatham House, the Club of Rome, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the United Nations, the Council on Foreign Relations, based in the United States in New York City, and all of its affiliated organizations. So the global elite run the Western world and ultimately influences the rest of the world through its round table of organizations that administers the decisions, goals, and objectives that is set forth by the Committee of 300 and its inner circle, the Knights of the Order of the Garter. So now let's look more closely regarding how the Order of the Garter came about. The most noble Order of the Garter was founded in 1348, and it's the highest order of chivalry, or knighthood, existing in England. King Edward III founded the Order of the Garter around the time of his claim to the French throne. Membership in the Order is limited to the Sovereign, the Prince of Wales, who is presently Prince Charles, and no more than 24 members or companions. The order also comprises supernumerary knights and ladies, meaning members of the British royal family and foreign monarchs. The monarch alone can grant membership. 
He or she is known as the Sovereign of the Garter, and the Prince of Wales is known as a Knight Companion of the Garter. The Order's emblem depicted on insignia is a garter with the motto, whose words come from Old French. And the translation of the words from the Old French means shame upon him who thinks evil upon it, or evil to him who evil thinks, in gold lettering. Members of the order wear such a garter on ceremonial occasions. According to researcher Dr. John Coleman, who interviewed a Grand Master at Oxford, the Order of the Garter is the parent organization over Freemasonry worldwide. And when a man becomes a 33rd degree Freemason, he swears allegiance to that organization. So the Order of the Garter is the core of the Committee of 300, otherwise known as the Olympians. So let's summarize this part of our teaching. Number one. The ancient Greek sporting games called the Olympics were regarded as a religious festival dedicated to the chief Greek god, Zeus. Number two, the lighting of the Olympic torch was done by a female who was seen as a priestess to the goddess Hera, the queen of Greek gods. Number three, the Statue of Liberty was a gift from French Masons to American Masons. Number four, the Statue of Liberty represents the Roman goddess Libertas, who represented liberty and freedom. This freedom included all forms of freedom, including sexual, immigration, and anything that you feel like personally doing. Number five, the seven rays of the spiked crown of the Statue of Liberty symbolizes the seven seas and continents and is also associated with the Greek god Helios, who is also sometimes called Apollo. Number six, the torch that sits on top of the Statue of Liberty represents the sun in the sky. To the Illuminati, the torch represents Lucifer, whose name means light bearer. Number seven, in Greek mythology, the chief god Zeus was married to Europa. The continent of Europe is named after Europa. Europa is often represented or pictured as sitting on the bowl of Zeus. Number eight, Mount Olympus in Greece was regarded as the home of the 12 Olympians. They were the principal gods of the Greek pantheon of gods. Number nine, the committee of 300 known as the Olympians are part of the global elite who are at the top of the global pyramid who rule the world. Presently, Queen Elizabeth II of England that is, until she dies, is currently the head of the Committee of 300. Number 10. The inner circle of the Committee of 300 is the Knights of the Order of the Garter. Currently, Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, is the head of the Knights of the Order of the Garter. They are the parent organization of worldwide Freemasonry. And when a man becomes a 33rd degree Freemason, he swears allegiance to that organization. We're going to continue by looking at the pyramid structure that is behind the system that governs the Western world. Specifically, we're going to look at the lower half of the pyramid that appears on the back of the U.S. $1 bill. The bottom half of the pyramid on the back of a U.S. $1 bill represents the various steps of Freemasonry. So we're going to look at the various steps and levels of Freemasonry and what is required in each step in order for an individual to reach the highest degree of Freemasonry, which is a 33rd degree Mason. The process begins at the Blue Lodge. The journey into Freemasonry begins as what is known as the Blue Lodge. 
The Blue Lodge is the foundation of all Freemasonry. These are the many local lodge groups scattered across the country in almost every little town and city. When a person wants to become a Freemason, he is initiated into the Blue Lodge through three degrees. The first degree is called Entered Apprentice. The second is referred to as the Fellowcraft degree. And the third degree is called a Master Mason. In order to join the Lodge, each Mason must first be initiated through an initiation ceremony, which is similar throughout the world. The original initiation ceremony for one to enter into a Masonic Lodge is called the Cable Toe. The typical ceremony begins with the initiate being first divested of his jacket and his tie and any money or metal articles that he has. His left trouser leg is then rolled up over the knee, his shirt is open to expose his left breast, and his right shoe is removed and replaced by a slipper. Then the person who is to be initiated will have a blindfold put on him and then a noose will be put around his neck. And this is called a cable toe. The blindfolded initiate, they call this being hoodwinked, is brought with the noose around his neck to the outer door of the lodge. The candidate, thus attired, is said to be in darkness, an allegory of masonry that signifies that everyone outside of masonry is in darkness and only masons have the true light of the world. So the new mason is brought to the outer door, seeking the light of the lodge, and there the doorkeeper, or tiler, will put a sword or a sharp point to his breast and lead him into the lodge room where an altar sits in its center. The lodge members await the candidate in the darkness that surrounds the altar, which is lit from a single light above. Behind the altar stands a man called the Worshipful Master. He is the master of the lodge and presides over the initiation. The entered apprentice vow in order to enter into the first level of the Blue Lodge includes the following words. Binding myself under no less a penalty than having my throat cut across, my tongue torn out of its roots, and buried in the rough sands of the sea, then the vow of the Fellowcraft degree, which is the second level of the Blue Lodge, includes the following words. Binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my left breast torn apart, my heart plucked out and given as prey to the wild beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and then one seeking the third degree of the Blue Lodge, that is, the Master Mason, vows the following. Binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my body severed in twain, my bowels taken from thence, and burned in ashes. Once an individual becomes a third-degree Master Mason, he is obligated to protect other Masons. The Master Mason who achieves the third degree of the Blue Lodge takes an oath requiring him to protect his fellow Mason or himself by committing one or more felonies including perjury, subordinating witnesses and jurors, concealing the felon, tampering with physical evidence and bribery, and as a judge or juror, allowing oneself to be influenced. Next, I'm going to share with you what Albert Pike, in his book published in 1871 entitled Morals and Dogma of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, who he himself became a 33rd degree Mason, explains regarding the understanding of the blue degrees of Freemasonry. In March 1858, Albert Pike was elected a member of the Supreme Council of the Southern Jurisdiction of the United States for the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. 
Pike also wrote lectures for all the degrees which were published in 1871 under the title Morals and Dogma of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. In honor of Albert Pike and his contribution to Freemasonry, he has a statue in Washington, D.C. So in his book Morals and Dogma, on page 819, he explains the following regarding the blue degrees of Freemasonry. The blue degrees are but the outer court or portico of the temple. Part of the symbols are displayed there to initiate, but he is intentionally misled by false interpretations. It is not intended that he should understand them, but it is intended that he shall imagine that he understands them. Pike goes on to explain from his book, Their true explication is reserved for the adepts, the princes of masonry. It is well enough for the mass of those so-called masons to imagine that everything is contained in the blue degrees. So next, I want to show you a layout of the Masonic Tabernacle compared to Moses' Tabernacle in the wilderness. On the left is the Tabernacle of Moses, and the God of Israel commanded that you enter into his Tabernacle on the east. In coming in from the east, the administrative functions of the Tabernacle are on the west. However, in a Masonic Tabernacle, you enter in the west. In the Master Mason, who is also called the Worshipful Master, he stands behind the altar in a position designated where he would be regarded as God. In the Bible, God is associated with the direction of east, and the Hebrew word for east is kadem. And often in the King James, the word kadem is translated as not only east, but as ancient. So that being the case, in Freemasonry, the master mason, or the worshipful master, sits on the east side of the Masonic Tabernacle, thus sitting himself in the position of God. So back to Albert Pike's book, Morals and Dogma, where he explains the meaning behind the different levels of Freemasonry, he says on page 213, Every Masonic Lodge is a temple of religion, and its teachings are instruction in religion. He says in page 210 of his book, Masonry is the legitimate successor from the earliest times the custodian and depository of the great philosophical and religious truths, unknown to the world at large and handed down from age to age, in an unbroken current of tradition, embodied in symbols, emblems, and allegories. And then on page 311, he explains, We belong to no one creed or school. In all religions, there is a basis of truth. In all, there is pure morality. All teachers and reformers of mankind we admire and revere. Masonry has her mission to perform. She invites all men of all religions to enlist under her banner. So once you've made it through the Blue Lodge and have risen to being a third degree Mason or a Master Mason, the Master Mason has a choice to stay in the Blue Lodge or to seek the advanced degrees through either the Scottish Rite or the York Rite. Within the Scottish Rite, there are the 4th through the 32nd degrees, and the 33rd degree is an honorary degree. On the other hand, York Masonry is the oldest and best known of all Masonic Rites. It takes its name from York, England. The three primary bodies in the York Rite... Well, that's going to conclude Part 8 of the series on the subject exposing the kingdom of darkness. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.
Thank you, Eddie. This is Stephen Morgan, and all of us here at Hebraic Heritage Ministries pray that you have enjoyed today's teaching. If you've been blessed, will you help us to share this message with others? Hebraic Heritage Ministries is supported by your generous financial gifts. In order to help you in your studies and to help us share this message with others, we are offering today the DVD, Yeshua the Lawgiver, for free for a love gift of any amount to the ministry. Hebraic Heritage Ministries also offers a monthly discipleship program. If you are interested in starting a fellowship group in your area, let us know. We would like to help you. Please contact us for more details. Our website is hebroots.org. That's H-E-B-R-O-O-T-S dot O-R-G. We would like to hear from you. Please send us an email. Finally, in order to take advantage of today's free offer, please mention this product offer and... Please mail your love gift to Hebraic Heritage Ministries, P.O. Box 81, Strasburg, that's S-T-R-A-S-B-U-R-G, Ohio, 44680. Until next time, may Yeshua richly bless you.